Welcome to Design Thinking Games, a gaming and user experience podcast. Card-carrying UXers Tim Broadwater and Michael Schofield examine the player experience of board games, pen and paper role-playing games, live action games, and video games. Play through the backlog on your podcatcher of choice and on the web at designthinkinggames.com. Design thinking is a process that is used to understand users, challenge assumptions, redefine problems, and create innovative solutions. In this podcast, we apply design thinking to gaming. Today, we're joined on Design Thinking Games um, by Breeze Grigas um, from Zephyr Workshops. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, yo. Thank you for having me on. Um, We recently did a... um, we kind of went to PAX East and we kind of had an intercept where we just talked to you candidly about um, uh, your game studio and Aegis. Um, but um, for those who didn't listen to that episode, um, maybe you can kind of speak to really quickly, you know, you, who you are, the name of your design studio, and then um, probably the games you're most proud of. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, my name is Breeze. Uh, like the wind, it's my real name. Uh, I am the director at Zephyr Workshop. We are a board game development studio uh, based in Washington, though we're all originally from Massachusetts. Uh, and our flagship sort of game is Aegis, combining robots. It is a tactics game about. Uh, you have a team of five robots. You fight against your opponent's team of five robots. You can combine smaller robots together into bigger robots. Um, and there's a lot of content in the box. It was basically made to be a you know a, a faster, more accessible, more affordable like version of like the more popular war games in the uh, in the genre. Um, so we did. We've been doing that game for a while. Uh, we kickstarted in 2018, and then we. Uh, published it. We started in 2017, published it in 2018, 2019. We sold through all of it right on time for the pandemic. <laughs> and then during during that, we have been working on a whole bunch of new stuff. Oh, nice. So, and when I talked to you, or like when we talked to you at um, uh, PAX East, um, you were working on uh, the second edition uh, yep. So yeah, we are making the first box of Aegis had like a hundred playable robots in it, and then we're doing a second box called Second Ignition, which is its own standalone game, but it's cross compatible with the first box. So we're it's basically like an LCG type model uh, that we're going for. Is when we get a third box and a fourth box, and they'll you'll all be you'll be able to play all of them on their own, but also they'll all be cross compatible with one another. And uh, so that's our that's what we spent most of the pandemic kind of doing and finishing up. And we're going to throw it up on Kickstarter soon, along with reprinting the uh, the first game. And so they can they work together or separately, correct? Yeah, they work together and separately. You can own one without the other, but together they make each other better. Yeah, I know that I've been talking to you and I've been trying to get a hold of the original one and it's kind of hard <laughs> to get a hold of because it, you know, it's uh, you'd have to get it on eBay or Facebook Marketplace or something. But I'm glad to hear that you're also 
reprinting it. Are you, is that going to be rolled up in the Kickstarter as well, or just kind of will happen? Yeah, that'll be rolled up. It'll all be rolled up in the same Kickstarter. Um, and uh, yeah, no, that's uh, that was actually news to me when you said you couldn't find a copy. I'm like, no way. There's always like... It's one. a good problem to have, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the Board Game Geek uh, marketplace is empty. eBay is empty. I couldn't find any on Amazon. So I guess our game is just like now very hard to find. Um, collectible status. Yeah, exclusivity. Uh, there you go. Right, it's uh, it's still available up on Tabletop Sim though, which is honestly where most of our regular players play it anyway. <laughs> nice. So that's uh, always an option. Right, like, is the experience like dramatically different without like the box that's just jack full of all those pieces? I, I imagine that uh, like like is it, did, did it map really well to like Sim? It it's like it's better and worse like in some areas it's never like a perfect one for one thing like the game actually looks different in tabletop sim than like real life it has standees but in tabletop sim we use tiles because you look at it from the top down um and the tabletop sim helps with setup we have a whole bunch of automated things where you can just hit a button and it'll poop out a robot team for you and like it'll set up the board and take out all appropriate things with like really quickly yeah. not that our game the real life game doesn't really have that bad of a setup either but you still have to like hunt and peck for some like your appropriate cards and pieces sometimes so tabletop sim makes that easier and then tabletop but then also tabletop sims like playing a board game with oven mitts on so it makes it a little bit longer more cumbersome so you, you, you give and you take I'm a kid of the 80s and I love Voltron and, you know, Transformers and <laughs> combining robots is amazing. Um, I'm just kind of wondering about the inspiration for this game, like where it came up with and how did it, can you speak to how it came into existence? Um, I used to go to Blockbuster as a kid and rent the same Voltron Transformers and like Star Avengers VHSs over and over. And because of that, I now do this instead of being a doctor. <laughs> so, it's like, so yeah, I watched a lot of cartoons, and then I kind of like shape that ended up like shaping its way into, I guess, my career. Um, Were you going to be a doctor then, or and then kind of? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea that there's a trajectory of like what. However, you spent your your early days in blockbuster is what you ended up in your real life <laughs> oh you know absolutely I, mean, I think that's that, that's how it works i could have worked on real robots at boston dynamics but then i watched one too many cartoons one day <laughs> that obviously <laughs> flung me into the uh the starving artist orbit <laughs> different timeline that's how it happens yeah right <laughs> We are super privileged to be brought to you by Dice Tower Theater because our show is designed to tease apart mechanics and other aspects of game design so we can better understand why they impact us. But this wonkery didn't start because we were born middle-aged. It began with fandom and escapism. When we're throwing dice at the table, we're not hyper-focused on reasons why someone gets advantage. We are the there. The blue flame has the great risk, correct? Are you sure, Sophie? I foresee a path you can understand, let alone tread, but you will have to walk yourself. As they venture into their fourth season, over 12 hours of story, Dice Tower Theater rekindles that original feeling we get. 
Are your minds made up too? Then step into the room behind me, adventurous. I wish you find what you seek and can heal your world. Dice Tower Theater, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Well, so like starving artist thing. I mean, we talk, you know, because like we're we're super into like the like the indie space, especially like kind of like the indie, like the 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 really new. We feel like over the pandemic, like there's been a whole like influx of like um, solo people like getting into like creating their own like TTRPG. Like this like creator space is um, really getting like flushed. Um, but like I, I I I I just I feel like my bias was like oh yeah we're talking to like uh, like another person but you kept on saying like oh like we we and I'm the director of but so at some point you like actually oh, yeah. formed like a. Like is there like you got you have a you have a team? What's that like? <laughs> oh yeah, so you know, it's me and my you know my me and my friends out of college formed this company. Awesome. If you actually look at the uh, if you ever see like the credits for the first Aegis box, there's like seventy people <laughs> in the credits because there's the the first Aegis box was in development for like six years because we didn't know what we were doing, um, and so I went through like this whole saga of uh just like on off like just uh we self-published it then we went through another publisher and then we self-published it again um for realsies the second time and then uh but yeah so currently like you know the team's like you know four people five people and also not only that we have like a bunch of new artists that i've been working with the last couple of years on the new box too so you know there's still I do. I still do a good vast majority of like the actual like game production stuff. Um, for the first box, I actually did most of the art too, but now I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> so I got to, I got to uh, hire artists, um, and now I can just be the art director. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's cool. I wish I had more people, and I divvied out my workload better. But it's also still better than being completely solo because that would be com- utterly impossible to make a game of our scale <laughs> as one person. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, How long were you kind of interested in gaming, not specifically tabletop board gaming or, you know, in general? And then um, can you speak to how does one even how did you even get interested or think about like you could make a game and and started to do it and how did that happen uh well i went to so i guess it started like i was in high school and then i went to i decided to go to a game design college because there was a little thing tacked onto the guidance counselor's wall and then i i applied and i got in because my college had no standards whatsoever and then uh I ended up doing really, I ended up doing pretty, pretty well there. Um, so Aegis actually started as a senior capstone project in my final year of school, or actually in my final semester of my final year of school. Aegis was our like senior project. Uh, and, but yeah, I wanted to, I guess I always wanted to like make games. I didn't know really, I, I originally went into college to do character art for games but i always just kind of knew i wanted to make things um so yeah i went to went to school did uh screwed around for three and a half years and then 
uh, made this in the last semester through like uh, the product pretty chaotic process and then when I started this game I actually had very little experience in tabletop gaming I played magic and like you know I had the I knew all the rudimentaries of you know mainstream board games but I did not know anything actually uh, my friend described to me uh, he was a big Warhammer enthusiast. So one day I'm just like, tell me everything. They, tell me everything about Warhammer. I just need to know <laughs> how it works because we were on this project together. And I was like, okay, I just need to know what, okay, how does Warhammer work? And he explains, he gets out the, he gets in front of the whiteboard. He for tells our me audience. Everything. Yeah. For our yeah. audience. How, do, how does Warhammer work? And go. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough time in the day. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, so I came from a background. I played I played lots of uh, handheld like strategy games, like a Fire Emblem and Advance Wars, which are mm-hmm. very very streamlined, single digit numbers. Everything's very intuitive. And then I got explained Warhammer, which every there's like a million different units. Uh, you can there's a bunch of different factions that contain those units. Every unit has its own textbook sized book that explains how the faction works, and those books change over time and the actual process of setting up the game and playing the game is like a four-hour process Mm -hmm. and i just could i couldn't actually and you know you measure it all with a ruler and i actually just couldn't at that point i had no familiarity so i couldn't even believe what i was hearing it's just like what if i just want to put dudes on a map and move them and we take turns and we shoot each other (laughs) what is this what is this uh this arcane process warhammers for dummies yeah that's literally warhammer oh my god so you got paired with a person who loved warhammer and when you were coming up with a game idea together that's what this conversation kind of came from then yeah so i was he was telling me about this i'm like oh how do i the entire time like how can we streamline this how can i make this simple or and actually be able to like you know make it as an idiot student who didn't know what they were doing. Um, so that's where kind of ages came from. Uh, it just like, it all hit me in like, un- like a day. It's just like, I was thinking about like, what if there's five different types of robot and they could put the different colors of room, these five different types of robot together into different combinations. What if you basically just play the pretty similarly, from a bird's eye view to like Fire Emblem or Advance Wars, you know, simple, small teams, mm-hmm. you move back and forth. Um, and so that it kind of, it kind of came, it kind of came together. Uh, the core concepts all came together pretty quickly. And then I'm assuming it was received well. Like, did people tell you, like, dude, this is <laughs> legit. You should publish this or like for your senior project or. <laughs> um, no, I was not. <laughs> There's not a lot of supportiveness <laughs> at our. Oh my god! When you go when you go to a when you go to a game design school, it's uh, and not that great of a one. We're professional UXers, man. Like everyone tells us, everything yeah. we do sucks. <laughs> oh yeah, no, exactly. So you know, you know, a lot of people were very disillusioned by the time we were about to graduate, and you know, I was like hell bent on actually making a game with this degree that I paid for. Mm-hmm. So I like, I went very full Monty into it. And, um, we, we first just show, we just decided to throw it together and show it at like some local conventions and hand make some copies. Mm-hmm. 
like physically hand make them like we got dice from here and pieces from here and stuff and we like threw them together and put them in a handmade box and we brought like 10 copies to like sell at like some really like local podunk convention and that was the encouraging part is when we first sold our first couple copies like these handmade copies and then from there we ramped up and we made like the next time we went it was our first time at pax east so we made like 100 copies Mm -hmm. and we sold it through there and then from there we got the attention of a publisher and we signed on with them and we kind of like spun our wheels with them for a while but through working with them we learned ev- like everything about the board game industry we went to like gen con for the first time and like all these other major conventions we got shipped around to and like the whole process of using InDesign, like adobe InDesign, to like make our cards instead of uh manually making everything in photoshop like mail merging them all and templates and all that kind of stuff yeah oh yeah 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 so we 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 went through like a crash when we were working with our publisher we went through like a crash course on how to actually functionally make a board game and ship it and market it and stuff like that um so even though like we didn't end up going through that publisher ultimately and publishing the game through them um we learned a lot Guys, playtesting is hard. If you've ever done that, you know how much of a struggle it can be. And if you haven't, you need to. It's part of good game design. That's why I'm super happy that this season of Design Thinking Games is brought to you by Playtest Kit. Literally playtestkit.com, which is designed by Steve Bromley to help us draw reliable, evidence-based conclusions that inform our design decisions. It gives us all the templates and guidance that we need to test prototypes, recruit, pick the right method, interview people, write surveys, and most importantly, configure and analyze the data so that we can do something useful with it. So whether you've never run a playtest before or you're a pro, this kit is going to save you time and help you get more value from each test you run. So sign up for free resources or go to get the full kit at playtestkit.com and for the rest of the season, this season only of Design Thinking Games, use the code DESIGNTHINKING to get 10% off and let Steve know who sent you. So you, before you took it, so you, so when you sold your first version, like where you kind of built it yourself and at a local con, mm-hmm. like before that, um, I guess I'm wondering one thing that we'd like to know as it relates to kind of to mm-hmm. the, the theme of our podcast is like, how did you handle playtesting? Like, how did you refine the game? Was that all done in school or is it kind of post, you know, have you even after the first version you sold or, or up to it? I mean, are you always tweaking and testing the game or can you speak to that? Oh my God. Yeah, no. Uh, so when you're starting, we're starting out, I guess I didn't know what we're doing. So, you know, ignorance is bliss because you are uninhibited by knowledge. <laughs> um, so <laughs> uh, we, when we first made the game, we put it out, like we made the first little initial copies, you know, that, that wasn't play tested. <laughs> we play, we play tested it. So nothing was theoretically broken, but was it balanced? No, not really. Um, and then we've refined it a, a 
bunch more by the time we made like the next like hundred copies that we would sell at packs. But even those were like, you know, we weren't, this was not Gloomhaven. Um, so this is not, uh, because like we were just thinking like, well, if we look at the cards and we think about how they work, that's obviously a form of balancing the game. Um, it's not, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> So yeah, no. So we 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 just without worrying about it too much, we just you know we made we threw the cards together. We made the rule book as decent as it could be, and actually, I'm very proud of our original rule book. I made that in Photoshop, forty pages, and uh, we the game was playable and decent. And some things were degenerate, and like our card designs could have looked better, and you know whatever. But. Uh, through selling those we learned stuff and like a lot of play testing actually came while we were demoing at events because there's no better type of testing for your product than showing it to total randos and just having them try to try it out and play it with you and you'll figure yeah. out which uh things are which things work and don't work very rapidly and that's actually where a lot of our aegis play testing in general got done in subsequent years as we just went to a lot of conventions and you know all the way up until three published the actual final version of the game in like 2018 you know we were adjusting and changing things and refining things based on feedback and um questions people had and things like that yeah i think that's yeah i, I guess i'm wondering like when we are i was at pax some people were admitting like hey we're we're still alpha testing we're we're still play testing that's why we're here where other people yeah. are like, no, we got the game. We're ready to, we want to let people know about it. Where other people were building hype for like Kickstarters or like back, you know. And so I was kind of curious because it seems to be also like, like you said, a great place to where you can, you know, actually interact with your players and two birds, one stone, promote it, but also play test it simultaneously. Yep. And that's exactly what we were doing at PAX East this year. Like Aegis 2 is in like, a pretty good state because we were, we were play testing it online all throughout the pandemic but nothing beats just you you go to a four-day convention and you play the game a hundred times <laughs> like across four days mm -hmm. um so we there so we were you know we were whipping out the sharpie and changing numbers and stuff and just really catching things that we hadn't caught before um oh yeah no, luckily all the core things were are still looking pretty good but yeah no when you when it comes to just like really seeing the big picture um of like how what what should our average numbers look like is the game length too long or too short that's where you really that's when you can start to really see it when you go to a convention yeah i kind of want to ask because some people you know that we kind of talk to do it all through tabletop simulator and they're just mm -hmm. like hey we had to do all of our play testing that way um, and then other people go to things like Protospiel, which is like a conference for playtesting specifically. And just wondering if you've, was that part of your strategy or, you know? It's a, uh, you, you can get, you get different information from different types of playtests. Online playtests are still good for like measuring, do my rules work? Um, are things intuitive? But you don't, really know if your board game works or not until you're playing it a lot in real life because things that are easy and digital might just get lost on you in real life or vice versa mm -hmm. like 
Um, setting up a board, like you were talking about. Setting, yeah. This is actually, yeah, setting up the board. Is it easy to parse something when it's all splayed in front of you, like on a real physical table? How often are you reaching your arm over people to touch and grab things? You know, things that just don't matter digitally um, because you can like zoom in and out and things like that. Uh, so knowing how usable, like physically usable your game is and how long the actual game time is or something, those are things that you can only find out in real life. Um, we try to, you know, we still try to do like both. We do a lot of our like intensive balance testing with like our diehard fans in our discord online, because that's where we're going to get like the walls of text feedback about why this mechanic should do this instead of that. Yeah, totally. PAX feedback is actually a lot more like why are our average games 10 minutes longer than we think they should be? <laughs> um, what mechanics are slowing the game down? Is something too complicated? Are attacks not doing enough damage? Is stuff, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. That's stuff that you, that we really didn't actually notice until we started throwing it into conventions again at Unplugged and East. Design Thinking Games is an affiliate of Space Engineers. Space Engineers is a sandbox game about engineering, construction, exploration, and survival in space and on planets. To find out more about Space Engineers or its new DLC, Warfare 2, go to designthinkinggames.com slash spaceengineers, or just go to our website and click on the banner. To, to your point, you know, a better product comes out of observing people use it. <laughs> and um, but I'm but I'm kind of curious. I don't know if I don't, I don't know how many people talk about this. What kind of like um, emotional gut punch is it uh, to receive some sort of like critique or feedback? Or is that not really a is that less of a thing in like the gaming playtester community than it is in you know? Yeah, because I think in UX, you definitely can something you're like, oh, my God, I didn't even consider that or like or, or really <laughs> something happens to where you're like, oh, and one of the things we do with 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 my team is like train them to like not get emotionally attached to the critique. Right. Because like it's there's a lot at stake, but we have to train mm-hmm. people to like not get destroyed <laughs> and like and like take that <laughs> home with them. What's that? What's that like? Um. What's that like receiving kind of like the negative feedback or, or does it or is that negative feedback always couched in a in a good way because the community is good? Uh, so it's so getting negative feedback is actually awesome because the worst kind of feedback is just utter indifference. <laughs> um, yeah, so if sure. people feel, yeah. oh yeah, no, if people really feel strongly about something, that at least gives you something to home in on to figure out what's like, you know, what's going on here. Um, that's why we don't get a lot of it mainly because, so we make niche games. And so people who hate it usually would never sit down to play it to begin with. Yeah. So it's like, it's worse. Our game, our car, our Saturday morning cartoon robot game has like a filter. <laughs> <laughs> so like it'll literally filter people out um, where if they don't want to play this, tactical dice rolly cartoon game um that immediately kind of cuts out a lot of people who would normally not play the game to begin with Mm -hmm. and then from there we'll get 
so it's in so it's an interesting like feedback bias that we get most of the feedback that we'll get is from people who would like the game and would play the game anyway um but we but we do miss out on feedback more general audience feedback like we don't know why somebody looks at our poster and like mm-hmm. just doesn't it just doesn't register in their brain and they walk by it or maybe they don't like it or something what's wrong with you you don't like giant robots what is that? yeah right <laughs> God. the problem is clearly with <laughs> you player <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's true i was gonna say like I mean, we, we have this like big poster that we made for pax unplugged that has like a million characters all over it's very loud and very dense and it's almost like it's like a kryptonite that chases away people i don't want to talk to anyway <laughs> but so yeah. but yeah like if you like uh as we we try to make the game as as uh we try to fulfill the promise that the game shows you with its art right so like if you look at this game our game is a dense colorful thing and so if you like the poster you'll probably be inclined to enjoy the game and if you don't like the poster you probably won't like the game um that's cool to like mike's point so we both do ux and um digital products or software you know and kind of the podcast is the ux of gaming or the player experience or px or whatever people want Mm -hmm. to call it um right and it's interesting to hear you say that like the worst feedback you can get is meh you know meh. oh yeah well you definitely want to get more than that but then also if there are people that are game designers and we're putting games out there but they're really not getting feedback from players at all um, do, do you have any thoughts or any thoughts about just the playtesting experience as it relates to that? Um, you have to move past being defensive or arguing against people who have feedback on your game because you like the idea that you put in. And it, it's a, it also, and you also have to like, uh, it also matters what kind of playtesters and feedback you're getting to. I mean, it's very easy to brush off certain kinds of feedback even though like you shouldn't like i say like if see if i if we if somebody like sat down and they're like i hate this kind of game i'm gonna play anyway because like my friend wants to play it i'm like okay cool well i would still like your feedback at the end regardless so i can actually get us like some insight into the mind of somebody who because when you release a board game there will be people who don't like your game who will end up being forced to play it because somebody else wants to play it because that's just the reality of board games um but uh, I don't know. I think you should you should always listen to all feedback, but you should also consider you have to consider where it's coming from. Um, not all feedback mm. is equal. It comes from different perspectives and from different types of players. And you have to still, well, taking that into account, you have to also try to remember what your game is. You don't have to like remodel your whole product to appeal to somebody who probably will never like it, but it's still really useful to understand how your game is perceived by the people. What advice would you give to um, aspiring game designers? There just seems to be a lot of like sayings or aphorisms or general truths or guidance that people have. And I'm just wondering, what is yours? Like, what would you say to aspiring game designers? Uh, if you're gonna make a board game, there's really no reason not to. So just do it. I've it's like the easiest thing to do because you can just take out a bunch of note cards and a pen. Bam! Five minutes later, you can have a board game that probably sucks, but you can play it. 
it's it's so much easier to do than making apps like from an entry point perspective um or like making video games where you have to like you know it could be months or weeks before your stupid thing even turns on um but in board games you can just jump kind of right into it and if you have an idea you can try to get that thing to paper or you can get that you can get that like you can go from brain to paper um without too many barriers and you don't even need to have it's cool if the game has a beginning middle and end but if you even just like make one part of it like the core like mechanic or whatever just to see if it works you can just like bust that out and run it back really quickly uh so i would just not hesitate um if you want to make a card game or a board game it's just uh you should jump into it there are lots of resources um available to you uh there's lots of good facebook groups um uh, board game design lab community is where i post in a lot uh very active uh you should go to conventions to test other people's games in like various testing areas like uh gen con and origins there's always like the first exposure room or the play whatever play test or the unpub room or whatever play testing room you could that's a really easy way to get into making board games is play testing other people's board games and you can kind of start getting an idea of how what does a prototype look like? How you can ask these other designers questions. Um, the whole board game industry is probably like a thousand people big. So once you start learning things and people, it's pretty exponential how fast you'll you'll grow and learn things. Are you, are you able to speak to like, you know, when people, when you think the Kickstarter is going to launch or like roughly part of the time of the year or something? uh soon as possible <laughs> um like yeah no like i just need i literally we're literally at the mode where like i just need to finish the kickstarter page uh we have the preview page up right now you can find it um uh, you can find the age of season it's called ages two or ages season two or ages second ignition it's all the same thing but uh you can find it up if you search for it we have a couple hundred subscribers on it on the kickstarter page already um, so just go there and hit the remind me button and then you will get a ding when we kickstart. <laughs> um, I am already a subscriber because I, hey. I love, um, games that are six player games. They're kind of hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it checks off a lot of cool boxes for me and probably for our listeners too. So, um, if people want to learn more about you or get in touch with you, um, or learn more about the games that are upcoming. What, how would you tell people to get it uh, in touch? Uh, you can go to our website at zephyrworkshop.com. And the easiest and best way to really follow up with whatever we're doing is probably just to go into our Discord or follow us on Twitter at, at zephyr underscore workshop. Well, listener, I hope you enjoyed that episode of Design Thinking Games um, that we just had with Breeze. Uh, if you like the show, uh, likes our heart and favorite us um, in your podcatcher of choice, specifically if you like more interviews like this, uh, please let us know. Any kind of feedback is appreciative, especially the kind that comes in five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. Um, if you are interested in getting in front of our audience, we have extremely affordable um, advertisements that we handcraft from the clay of the earth for merely the cost 
of a fancy coffee. Um, consider, you probably heard one of those advertisements today. Um, consider that you yourself could have something as epic as one of those advertisers. If you just want to try to give us money and support us for you know keeping the lights on, we put a lot of work into Design Thinking Games. Patreon.com slash Design Thinking Games is your place to go. We have delightful tiers that are named after the original Wolfenstein classic. Wolfenstein? Wolfenstein? Um, and... If you can't afford it or you don't want to afford it, every other week, thereabouts, every three weeks, uh, we have a show for you on all the podcatchers of choice. That's it. Voltron Assemble. Thank you for listening to the Design Thinking Games podcast. You only have so much time, and it means a lot you shared it with us. To connect with your hosts, Michael or Tim, visit Design Thinking Games on TikTok, Twitch, and Twitter. DMs are open. You can also check out designthinkinggames.com, where you can request topics, ask questions, or see what else is going on. Until next time, game on.